welcome to the Mathis Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes. If you're watching here on YouTube, you see that big red subscribe button there. That's to remind you to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click that bell for continued notifications so that you can see when we drop new videos. You also see two website domains there, victorybaptistkc.org. That is the URL to my church's website. Um, and uh, our church is, is um, uh, putting content on Sermon Audio uh, every week. And so that's just another place where you can find preaching series, teaching series. And if you're ever in the Kansas City area, please pay us a visit. We'd love to see you. Look us up when you're here. Um, and then you see the baptistbroadcast.com. That's my personal blog. You can find all my articles there that I write. Reception. What do we mean when we say a doctrine has been received from one or by one generation from another, from another generation that lived before, right? So if we take the first generation of reformers, what does it mean to say that the reformers received doctrine from the medieval scholastics or the reformers received methodology from the, uh, from the medieval scholastics or something like that. And then we know that there's a great deal of reception in the first generation of reformers from someone like Augustine. In fact, that's a, that's a, a, a heavy theme in academic historical studies with regard to the, to the reformation is, is how Augustine was used and employed and, uh, and understood, uh, in the first generation of reformers and Calvin, especially. And, um, so when we're talking about reception, sometimes we're talking about things that were that were consciously received, things that were intentionally received, like uh, received, uh, and you can tell that they were received because the person receiving them actually cites them, quotes them, and so on and so forth. It's kind of like when when Calvin actually quotes Augustine, and so you can tell, uh, you know, in an in an approving uh, approving manner, and so you can tell at that point that Calvin has received. Augustine, some of Augustine's thought, some of Augustine's interpretations of Scripture, and so on. Um, sometimes it's not done so consciously. Sometimes it's it's done really as a result of just growing up in the milieu of ideas, uh, growing up in a particular circumstance, and the and the ideas that were received were received because they're so pervasive in the culture and the intellectual community, and so on. So you're not always going to have reception in one author demarcated by virtue of, you know, uh, explicit citations and quotations like that. So, um, when, and when we say, you know, if, we, if, if I was to say, which is my, it's going to be my claim here, really my thesis statement of this video, is that Calvin received Aquinas. Um, what I don't want to be understood is that Calvin received all of Aquinas. Uh, any careful historical theologian is going to, you know, do the work of examining where Calvin and Aquinas share continuity of thought and where they also share, or where, where, they, where they have discontinuity of thought. And so uh, when we're talking about reception, we're by no means talking about wholesale reception of uh, any given author into the theology or into the corpus of some author that lived, you know, future to them. Um, and in this case, I think this... this um, when, when we look at Calvin and Aquinas here, which is what I want to do, the reception that we're going to find of Aquinas in Calvin is going to be significant, I think, in terms of understanding the discussion on sola scriptura. The, dis the current discussion on sola scriptura has not done a very good job, at least 
in the more uh, at the more popular level, um, at the more advertised level, has not done such a great job of being uh, transparent with what has actually been received from Aquinas into Calvin and into the first generation reformers, and then of course the second generation reformers, and then eventually you know the post Reformation. Um, it's not been very transparent. It's been very one-sided, um, and and it's been very emphatic of the discontinuity between Calvin and Aquinas, which we should admit that there is obviously discontinuity between those two men, but um, there's also continuity. There's also reception that needs to be honestly kind of thrown out onto the table so that we can do better you know, work in terms of understanding you know, how the first generation reformers were thinking and, and then how that kind of led eventually uh, developed into the reformed confessions in, in the later period, 17th century, uh, high reformed orthodoxy. What I want to do then is I want to start with Aquinas. We're not going to look at extensive block quotes. I have some quotes here that, that I'm probably not going to end up reading. These are, these are quotes that would show uh, another line of reception, I think, uh, in Calvin's thought where he's looking at what we would call uh, the distinction between mixed articles, mixed articles, you know, the preambles of the faith that are also revealed in Scripture um, and, and also revealed in nature. So you have things that are revealed through nature and through Scripture. Uh, those are mixed articles. And then you have articles of the faith uh, that are revealed exclusively through Scripture that you cannot get without biblical revelation, special revelation. So there's some reception of of Aquinas into Calvin on that line, but really what I want to focus on here is just um, the reception of the necessity of Scripture in addition to natural revelation for the sake of man's redemption. In other words, man cannot be redeemed unless... He has scripture, unless he has special revelation, what Aquinas calls divine revelation. And so I'm going to start with Aquinas first, uh, because he's the older of the two. And then we'll move to to Calvin to show where, where Calvin actually agrees with this. And and this is this is to show, by the way, that you know, we always talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, we stand on the shoulders of Calvin and Knox and but we never, we hardly ever ask the question whose shoulders those men were standing on. And I would say Aquinas is actually one of the men whose shoulders upon which they were standing to, to understand things. Uh, whether that was consciously the case or whether or not that was just kind of received because the ideas that were propagated from the time of Aquinas and even before Aquinas were so pervasive in their day and age that they received them into their way of thinking. So Aquinas says, and this is question, this is, First volume of the Summa Theologiae, first question, this is before he gets into, into any of the natural theology stuff, Aquinas begins with scripture. Question one, article one. He says, first indeed, because man is directed to God as to an end that surpasses the grasp of his reason. So notice what he's saying there. He's saying there, there, is, there is something necessary for man and, and for man meeting his end that surpasses the reason of man. Man needs something else. And then he quotes Isaiah 64, 4. He says, The eye hath not seen, O God, besides thee, what things thou hast prepared for them that love thee. 
Then he continues and he says, But the end must first be known by men who are to direct their thoughts and actions to the end. In other words, if you're going to go that direction, you have to know, right? You have to know God truly. If you're going to go to that, if you're going to meet that goal, you have to know what is pertinent to meeting that goal. Hence, he says, it was necessary for the salvation of man that certain truths which exceed human reason should be made known by him or to him by, by divine revelation. So what you have Thomas saying here is that there are these natural truths that we can, that we can know about God through the light of reason, he would say. But the light of reason is not going to take us to a redemptive knowledge of God. It's not going to take us to a knowledge of God that is sufficient unto our salvation. For this reason, God superadds divine revelation. He superadds to the situation divine revelation, a special revelation in the form of the Holy Scriptures. All right. So you have a natural theology or you have a natural revelation that is antecedent to the Scriptures, right? You have God revealing himself through the world, uh, that he has made, this is very Romans 1, 18 through 20, uh, that knowledge that's derived, that natural knowledge that's derived through that natural revelation is not sufficient unto man meeting his redemptive ends. So he must have divine revelation given to him in the scriptures. Calvin says, in substance, the identically same thing. All right, so he says, he says this, and this is coming to us from book one of the Institutes of the Necessity of the Holy Scriptures. He says, though the effulgence, which is presented to every eye, he's talking about natural revelation here, both in the heavens and on the earth, leaves the ingratitude of man without excuse, Romans 1, 18 through 20, since God, in order to bring the whole man, uh, the whole human race under the same condemnation, holds forth to all without exception, a mirror of his deity in his works. Again, Romans, 18, Romans 1, 18 through 20, God is made known through the works of his hands. He's made known through what has been made. So he's saying, he's saying he holds forth to all without exception, a mirror of his deity in his works. Um, but he's given another, he says, he's given another and better help uh, to guide us properly to God as creator. All right, and there's this kind of, Twofold knowledge of God in Scripture that Calvin talks about. Um, there's a knowledge of there's a knowledge of God in Scripture that is corrective and more detailed in the Scriptures that doesn't necessarily lead to salvation, uh, and that's what he's getting at here. Is that there's there's this there's this better, higher knowledge of God in Scripture, um, and we're not necessarily talking about um, knowledge sufficient unto unto salvation. Um, and so we're talking about the, the intimate knowledge that perhaps Noah, uh, Abraham, you know, think about, think about knowledge of the law, for example. There, there, you know, if you're not just talking about natural law, but you're talking about the positive law that God institutes for man's good at certain times and at different places and seasons for certain individuals or groups, um, then, then those positive laws may not always lead to redemption. Uh, circumcision obviously did not automatically lead to redemption, yet uh, it must be revealed by the scriptures. So there are things revealed by the scriptures, he, he says here, that, that are proper for us to know. Even God as creator, there is an improved knowledge of God as creator in the holy scriptures. Um, but, he's, but what he's saying here substantially agrees with what Thomas has already said that we've seen. And that is that there is this 
knowledge of God through nature, all, you know, man knows God through what has been made, Romans 8, 1, 18 through 20, but that's not sufficient. There must be scripture given to man that he would know God aright. That he, he would know God not only as creator, but that he would know God as redeemer as well. Um, that he would know the incarnation, that he would know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, and so um, man cannot be redeemed apart from the knowledge that comes through Scripture. I think this is very important. It should be formative in our understanding of the reformational doctrine of sola scriptura. Because on this very substantial baseline fundamental point, Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin agree, agree on this point. Yes, do they, they agree on other points. Of course, there's some discontinuity, but on this fundamental substantial point, there's reception. There's reception of Aquinas into John Calvin. And so, that the, you know what? And, and at the very least, no matter where you fall on the issue, at the very least, we should not obscure continuity in an effort to elevate and emphasize the discontinuity between the first-gen reformers and the, the medieval scholastics because there is continuity there. Unfortunately, that continuity is not really being allowed to, to, to be brought out to its fullest because there's an emphasis on the discontinuity. And um, so I would, just, I would just encourage people to, you know, to dig into this. A lot of work needs to be done here, I think. Uh, there's been some, some work done uh, in terms of reception. There's been some stuff done, uh, you know, on John Owen's reception of Aquinas, which isn't really a surprise because Owen's living during the time of, of the post-Reformation, you know, Reformed Scholastics. And, and, um, and so that's not, that's not too big of a surprise. I think where there needs to be more work done is on the reception of medieval scholasticism into the first gen and second gen reformers, um, precisely because there there are harsh words in the first and second gen reformers against the the medieval scholastics, uh, and that's brought out explicitly in in their 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 work, but it's also not the case that they ditched medieval scholasticism altogether. That there there is some reception. There, there's some osmosis going on that, that needs to be brought out and honestly and transparently looked at. So hopefully that was helpful. Again, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Click the bell for continued notifications. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.